0: All right, join me, and we are in the book of Exodus as we continue our series of expositions through this book of redemption, of getting out of slavery, of getting out of bondage towards living for God. And we're anticipating shortly that God's people, as we keep walking through this book, as we come to chapter 19 and following, they're going to be receiving the Word of God, the law of God of the Lord um, through Moses on the mountain. It's going to change them and should form them and so forth. But we see, in preparation for this first, as we turn to chapter 18, we're going to see the importance, though, of getting that word out. That is, chapter 18 actually takes place chronologically out of order. Uh, This probably, what takes place in chapter 18, probably happens somewhere between chapters 23, 24, or 25, or maybe even a bit later. But it's after the giving of the law, Jethro arrives, and he's a picture of the importance of getting the word out Getting a word out there in that he was an outsider being called in, but also getting the word out and in, into the hearts of God's people. It's so important to get the word out, to notify people of what's new, what's changed. Just in anything, if there's a new happening, it's important to get the word out that that if something's happened, something's changed, left a life gets wasted, living by old news, old rules, a bygone reality, because people haven't gotten the word yet. And perhaps this is no better illustrated than the story of a soldier, Teru Nakamura. He was the last Japanese soldier to surrender after World War II. Of course, the war ended in late summer of 1945, but Nakamura kept fighting, hiding on an island in the Indonesian jungle for another 30 years. He surrendered to the Philippine Army in 1974. Jessica O'Connor tells part of his story and says, By the 1970s, World War II had been over for nearly three decades. Young soldiers had returned home, they had started families, and entered middle age. I'll just pause. They lived a new life. But on December 18, 1974, news broke that one man had never gotten the memo on the war's end. And Nakamura was discovered on the Indonesian island of Moritai, where he had been stationed in 1944. This final World War II holdout emerged 30 years after 30 years of living in near isolation to see the whole world had changed because he didn't get the news. And certainly, we wouldn't criticize Nakamura's commitment, his dedication, his sacrifice for his country, save only that much of it, of his service, nearly three decades, was trying to fight a battle that was already over, that was already done. Again, many like Nakamura had been in a situation, but they had surrendered, and they were able to go home, they were able to start a new life, because they got the news, but not Nakamura. It it illustrates in one half the, the importance of getting the word out, but that's not to say Japan and others didn't try and let their scattered soldiers in on the news. Actually, in late 1945, leaflets dropped over Nakamura's island, telling him that the war was over but he wouldn't believe it. He was sure it was propaganda, so he continued fighting and hiding for the next 30 years. Again, this illustrates it's not merely that the the word needs to go out, but it needs to be pressed in. It wasn't until men dressed in Japanese soldier garb, waving Japanese flags, and singing the Japanese national anthem approached his hut that Nakamura finally came forward and surrendered. Actually, which there's a very similar story of the second-to-last Japanese soldier to surrender. He surrendered only 10 months earlier for Nakamura. And it, what it took for him, it took his old commanding officer, 30 years later and much older, to appear in uniform and tell him he was off-duty for why he finally gave up. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort to not only get the word out, but to press the word into the hearts of the people. It can't just be broadcast. It has to be delivered, sometimes personally. So I think you can understand where the analogies are coming here. We have marching orders from King Jesus, and we, of course, have been commanded. We've got to get the gospel word out. We have to send it far and wide out to the nations, but tandem with that, we have to get the word deep in, and that sometimes takes a lot more effort than you think. Because so we're all around the word, but we need to be pressing the word into one another's hearts. So, the word for us this morning, as we turn to Exodus chapter 18, it's this. Christ forms His people all by the Word. We are saved by the Word about Christ. We are drawn and formed to Christ-likeness by that Word. We are alive because of the Word. And so, as people of the Word, we're doing two things. We're getting the Word out to others in the world, but then we're also pressing it deep into our own lives. And that's the twofold responsibility we see unfold as we turn now to Exodus chapter 18. And the first is this, just simply, we have to get his saving word out to others, verses 1 through 12. And we see it pictured for us here as we turn and we encounter somebody we've heard about before, but we haven't seen him for some time, and his name is Jethro. Remember him? He is Moses' father-in-law. He, as it opens in verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father in law, heard of all that God had done for Moses. And so now he's going to go find Moses and hear a firsthand story of what God's been doing. Now, we haven't heard from Jethro in a while, but he would have been very familiar to Moses. Moses lived with him for some. 40 years before he started the exodus out of Egypt. Remember this, Moses at first tried to do the exodus on his own, and then he was pursued by Pharaoh after murdering that Egyptian. So he ran off into the wilderness and he rescued some gals who were trying to water their sheep. Well, those were Jethro's daughters and one of them Zipporah. And then once Jethro found out, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Moses marries Zipporah, Jethro becomes his father-in-law, and they lived together in the wilderness for some 40 years. So you have these two characters in the beginning here, Moses and Jethro, they knew each other very, very well. But since Moses had left Jethro's house, Jethro hadn't heard from Moses for some time. A whole lot had taken place that Jethro wasn't privy to but he's hearing rumblings of it passed down to him. I mean, how can you not? A whole nation of people being driven out of Egypt. He's hearing things about Moses and Moses' God, this God that he met in the bush. So let's pick it up then. Let's look at verse 1. Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for the people of, or excuse me, for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, this is also said here, this becomes a really strong contrast. You have these outsiders, Jethro, he's not a Jew, he's not Jewish, he's not of the people of God, he's not of the promised people, and yet he's being drawn in. He hears the message about Yahweh, and he's getting closer, he needs to know more. But you remember, what was at the end of chapter 17? He had the Amalekites. These were like Israelite cousins, but they were not of the promised people of Israel either. But when they heard about what Yahweh was doing through Israel, they said, we're not intrigued. We're threatened. We're going to war. But Jethro's response is much different. He's intrigued. He needs to know more about this God, Yahweh of Israel so he's going to go see Moses. But not only that, he goes because he has a particular responsibility to fill. Continuing on now, verse 2. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home along with her two sons. So, Jethro had been babysitting for who knows how long with Zipporah and Moses' sons, and now he's bringing the family back, back to Moses. Now, the trick is, as we go through the book of Exodus, we're all kind of asking ourselves, well, when did Zipporah leave? (laughs) Because if you recall, we know Zipporah was traveling with Moses after he heard from God at the burning bush, and he was going to go back to Egypt and deliver them. We had this whole strange circumstance of this circumcision thing. You can go read about it in Exodus chapter 4 if you don't remember. But the point is, Zipporah, Moses' wife, and his sons were with Moses as he went back into Egypt getting ready to deliver the people. But now, as they're out and being delivered, evidently they're not with Moses. So, what happened? Well, I think you have two options. One, Moses, before the plagues got really bad, he sent his family out of town, out of Egypt, back to go be with the father-in-law into safety, you might say. Or, very possible is also this. Zipporah and the sons were with Moses as they came even out of the Red Sea and were delivered. And they're heading back to Mount Sinai, right? That's near where Jethro lives. So perhaps Zipporah and the sons are sent on ahead because they can travel a lot faster than 2 million plus wandering people and all of their animals. They go on ahead to tell grandpa all that's gone on. Well, either way, what's going on is that The family's being reunited with Moses. But more importantly, Jethro takes center stage here. And as he comes to Moses, we take special note of Moses' response. It's interesting as you go through this text, how often Jethro, he does not even, his name is used, but it's not used all the time. More often than not, he's described as Moses' father-in-law. This familial connection is so important because it's preempting what's going to happen in obeying the law. I think it's a picture already of what it means to honor your father and your mother. We're seeing it here lived out already by Moses. So, when Moses, who's led this incredible victory over the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, delivered all of these people, they all report to him. He's able, through God's help, of course, to do amazing things in the wilderness, and then your father-in-law comes to town. You know, you might be tempted to kind of show him, like, hey, we're doing okay. Look at me. I can provide very well. Look at all the great things God is doing or that I can do. As if he's above his father-in-law, but this isn't the picture at all. He honors his father. He gives him the warmest of welcomes, the greatest of respect. He truly honors him. Look at verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down to him and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. This is the greatest of honors and respect. Moses, he's just showing his great humility, his fear of God. But even in light of all of that, it becomes then like a family reunion. You know, this is like when you have family, maybe that from out of town and they happen to be traveling, they come by. And then what do you do with family? Lord? Like when you see them at Thanksgiving and you haven't seen them in about a year. Well, you got to rehearse. Oh, well, here's all the grades that my kids are in, and here's all the sports that they're playing or whatever. You're just talking about life. I mean, and in a way, that's what's expressed by, they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. What's new with you guys? That's all this means. Well, you can imagine him asking, things going good, Moses? What's going on? And Moses is about to say, things are going pretty good. Let me tell you about something. Things are going pretty well, actually. I got something to tell you. But he's not going to tell him all the things that Moses has been about, really. That's not the the center of what he's focused on. What does it say? I'm going to tell you all about what God has been doing. The first opportunity he seems to get, Moses is quick to get the word out. And what does that mean? To tell of God's praises and his deliverance. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, for all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Just on the first note, this this, this question about how you doing, this is just a basic welfare question. This is just everyday type conversation. And it's out of this conversation that praises to God are coming out of Moses' mouth and from his lips. Out of this everyday conversation, he's speaking about God. He's speaking about the Lord, and he's speaking about what the Lord has done. He's giving firsthand glorious testimony to what the redeeming work of God can do. But it's not all, you know, puppies and rainbows either. Do you see that in verse 8? He tells the great things that the Lord has done, but what does he also mainly describe right in the middle there verse 8? All the hardship that came upon them in the way. He gives an honest answer even as he reports, well, how are things going? He tells them about the the hard stuff. He tells them that the road to get where they are, this wasn't all easy. You know, it was great. We saw the sea split. We all went through, and then we couldn't find any water. And then we were all about to starve. And then we couldn't find water again, and everybody was ready to kill me. Moses doesn't sugarcoat it. And I think that's uh, instructive for us as we think about evangelism, too, because I think it's easy for us to try and sugarcoat the Christian life, to make it seem like some kind of fairy tale. You now Jesus called me, and I came to faith, and now I have peace with God, and it's just happiness, life ever after, until it isn't. We we try, I think, to dress things up or pass over the difficult things because we really want people to believe because we know there's souls at stake. But I think we do well also to be honest. Because understand, as we're honest, even about the trials and struggles, do you know what we're able to illustrate? It's the end of verse 8. It says, He talked about all the hardship that came upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Following Christ might not be easy, I actually lost a lot of my friends when I came to Jesus, but I'm walking with Christ still, and I know He's with me. Actually, becoming a Christian was really hard. I lost my job because I had to tell my boss that what we're doing was not honest, but I've seen the Lord provide for me time and again, though not to the same degree. Because don't you see that you can say through even the trials and difficulties, Christ has been with me there too, because we know He has. He has. Actually, it's your testimony about past hardships that might really strike a chord for how God has been at work for your good, that they can see. Or you might be, as you're sharing the gospel, talking with somebody, you might even be in the midst of a trial at this moment, and you don't even know how it's going to end. You don't know how God is going to deliver. And maybe that too, that kind of honesty will strike a chord to say, yeah, what I'm going through right now is really hard. I don't even know how I'm going to get through this, but I still trust Him. And we can say this side of the cross, because His cross still proves to me that He's still for me. And with that word, maybe they will have a sense for the greatness of our God too, even through the difficulty. And in effect, all of that together, this is is what's happening to Jethro as he hears this report from Moses. Because we look on to then verse 9 and 10, it says, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And you see the operative word. He's rejoicing for all the good the Lord has done. And what's the good that he's done? Well, it's this repeated word, in that he delivered them. And then when it's out of his actual mouth, blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hands. And at the end of verse 10, has delivered from the people. He praises God because he's a deliverer. He's a savior and he's a redeemer. And it works to him to then give praise to God as he sees his redemption of sinners of the wayward as Israel illustrates even in the wilderness over and over God still mercifully delivers Jethro sees that and he cannot but praise God for it So starts he starts with his own words of praise to God but these words of praise as we turn to verse 11 become his own personal confession He sees God deliver. He sees him deliver the wayward, the grumbling people of Israel. And he knows he can be a deliverer for sinners like me. So, verse 11, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So he has worked from praise to now a confession of faith that Yahweh is the God above all gods. Because see, before this, you got to understand about Jethro, he's a priest. Remember, back to verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian. So, this is a religious guy. He's a worshiper. It just isn't all that clear about who or what he worships. And if we go back typical to the time and area he lived in the ancient Near East, Jethro was likely polytheistic, that is, a worshiper, a believer in many, many gods, and you would pray to or sacrifice to. Whatever God was most convenient to your problem, right? Whether it was the God who of fertility, you're going to pray and sacrifice to him. Or the God of knowledge and wisdom, you pray and sacrifice to him. But things are changing now for Jethro, right? He's heard directly from Moses' mouth the kind of things that God is doing. And then don't forget, he showed up with Moses. And what is he seeing before him in this desert wilderness? Two million people plus That God has delivered out of Egypt and brought them here. What is a testimony of? God is at work. He's a deliverer. There's no God like him. This God has no peer. He has no comparison. He has no rival. He has no competitor. Yahweh stands alone. He alone is God. That's even in that last phrase there of verse 11. He says, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, this whole deliverance, they, he probably has in mind either the Egyptians or even the gods of Egypt, they dealt arrogantly with this people, and guess what? They all lost. Remember, Egypt had this whole very complicated polytheistic hierarchy that he had gods for everything. You had the gods of the frogs, and you had the gods of the Nile, and you had even Pharaoh being a god. And as they afflicted and troubled the people, Yahweh stepped in to say, you got nothing on me, and you will have nothing on my people. And as Jethro has this new found faith, he praises God, he confesses faith in God, and now he's going to worship God through sacrifice. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law. And note this last phrase, so key, before God. And actually, this sign of sacrifice is a sign of total dedication that Jethro is taking to put his trust in Yahweh. And that's seen most evidently in the sacrifices given. For one of those, it mentions he brought a burnt offering, or usually translated a whole burnt offering. The notion of a whole burnt offering is this kind of sacrifice that is—it's not parcelled, it's not cut up in pieces. It's just put on the altar and entirely consumed. And and the worshiper is saying, "God, I'm giving my all to you." I think this is the kind of picture that Paul picks up on. We talked about it in this morning already in Romans 12, that we live our life as a living sacrifice. All of us. We live a life of worship and dedication. That's what he's saying as he offers this sacrifice. I'm all to you, giving my all. But this newfound faith, this newfound confession and worship, it points to this new relationship pictured in this fellowship meal. You see that again at the end of verse 12? So he makes the sacrifices, and then Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law, and then again, that last phrase, before God. So this wasn't merely, hey, we're having Sunday evening fellowship, everybody bring a snack, so we can come just eat in the foyer, because we don't eat in the foyer, we eat in the East Hall, but you get the idea. It's not about just having food together. This is a communion together this is a partnership and unity together. This is a fellowship meal. This picture is in that ancient context, the, the unity, the oneness, the partnership, the peace between them, all the parties involved, which what do we see? Who are the parties involved? You got Jethro, you got Aaron and the leaders of Israel, so representative of the whole nation, and who else is there? God is there. They eat it before God. That's illustrating as Jethro, he's been fully received, outsider though he is, in his faith and confession, he's been fully received as one who's in fellowship and partnership with God. One who knows God and God knows him. And God receives him into his table of fellowship. But none of that would have happened, right? If the good word had not gotten out to Jethro. It wouldn't have happened without Moses retelling what God had done. It wouldn't have happened, so to speak, if in in his everyday conversation, Moses just hadn't brought up how God had been working and delivered his people. It wouldn't have happened if Moses hadn't taken that initiative to show what God had did, what he is doing, and how he's providing, and how God is testing us, and how he's at work shaping and forming them. Why? Because Moses recognized God's involved in every part of my life, so I can talk about him in every part. And that's true about our lives. This isn't just a picture of Israel. We know this from, again, we go back to this verse because it's so comprehensive, it's so encouraging, right? Romans 8.28, For we know that God works together all things for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. But all things means all things, every detail of our life. God is intimately involved and active. And so we should be recognizing that and speaking about that, about really kind of everything in our life. It shows in a a mindset of faith that we really are walking step-by-step through our daily life depending on God, and we see God at work. And if you're wondering, well, I'm not sure I see God at work, well, just think about what goes on in your life. Think about what you prayed about, and the prayers God has answered. It can be something as very ordinary as we've been praying in fellowship group for a brother to get a certain kind of medical test. We've seen it get answered. Praise God. But let's speak about that. Or maybe it's something maybe more major in your family's life. You're praying, God, I need you to provide me somewhere to live. I need a certain house. I want to serve you, and I want to work for the Lord. Lord, how will you provide? This was what my family was praying a few years ago. And we actually got an offer in a house. and it seemed like a good deal. And then after we thought about it, it seemed like a horrible deal after we did the house inspection. And we said, Lord, is this good? We put it before you. Provide something else. We're not in the area we wanted to be in. Put us where you want us. And then the Lord provided a house in the neighborhood that we, were, we thought ideal for life and ministry here. But it's so easy to pray earnestly. God provides. We go, yes, praise God. And then we forget. When those can be those stones in life you go back and remember, and that we should be pointing out to people regularly, okay, welcome to my house, but let me tell you, God gave us this house. Let, let me buy lunch today because God's given me a job, and let me tell you how God provided the job, even if it was, it seemed kind of ordinary, but no, God was in those details. Again, this is kind of walking by faith through life and being quick to speak about God, even in everyday normal life. And if we can have a mindset, God's involved in all the details, then I think evangelism doesn't have to seem so awkward in everyday life. You know, I recall one sister sharing how awkward it can seem to try and shoehorn the gospel into like any situation. I think we all resonated with her story. She was sharing how, you know, she's at the supermarket. It was something like, you know, you grab an orange, and you're holding the orange, and then somebody just happens to walk by you and say, oh, you should take that one. That one looks good. And then you're thinking, ooh, maybe they're an unbeliever. i got to get the gospel in somehow. Yes, but no person is good, not even one. (laughs) Or something like, it looks good on the outside, but who knows on the inside. Do you know you on the inside are not so good? Now, that's fine. May it be a doorway for the gospel. But the point is, it doesn't have to seem so awkward or forced. We're just people of faith walking through life. And as we're walking through life, we know God's walking with us and working in us and for us. And so what are we going to do? We're going to speak about our God in everyday ways, in everyday life. Everyday faith and an everyday God who works in every day of our life. And so let us be quick to speak about Him every day. And we'll talk more about this, uh, especially, Lord willing, next week as we look at Exodus 19. Namely, that we were saved and redeemed, and that by God's Word. And so, we, if we are Christians this morning, we have heard that Word from someone else. They graciously shared it with us, and so now it's our turn to speak of all that God has done and is doing. And most of all, to retell then the greatest story and the most magnificent thing that God has done, that he can save a sinner like me, right? We get to tell them, yes, there's bad news. Yes, you've disobeyed God. You were worse than the most rotten orange you can imagine. And you're going to be judged by God like I was, but there's a Redeemer. He's come for us. He's died for us. He's risen. He'll forgive you. He forgave even me. What good news we have to share. Eternity-changing news. May those around us not be living like a war still going on when they can have peace with the eternal God at the cross. But that means we've got to get the word out. But not only do we have to get the word out, we have to get the word in. We got to get his living word into our lives. Verses 13 to 27. So back to this pattern here we see with Jethro. He on day one hears the great things that the Lord has done. And he's with his son-in-law, so by day two, he sees some things, and he lets uh, Moses know about it. He sees this glaring drawback in the ministry of God's Word in Israel. So when he sees what goes on, he has questions. Let's look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people... Moses' father-in-law said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses, what are you doing? Why do people need to hawk around you like every waking moment of your life? It seems like Moses just kind of rather matter-of-factly just responds, now, looking at verses 15 and 16, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Now, despite Moses' explanation, and that's what God had commissioned to him, Jethro just sets it straight, as maybe as only a father-in-law can, right? Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, hey, what you're doing is not good, Period. Thanks, Dad. Tell me how you really feel. What else can I do wrong today, Dad? But Moses gives no indication of offense, of course. He's more mature than that. And maybe because through all of this, he feels, ah, maybe Dad's right. Because this isn't working out so good. What's the trouble? Jethro highlights it. Verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the things too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And we, and we go back and we think last week, right? Moses' arms had to be held up. He wasn't strong enough. He's just one guy. And now they're seeing it very practically with the ministry of the word out to the whole nation of Israel. You can't hold it up. You can't do it alone. But notice in verse 18, it's not only wearying to Moses, it's wearying to everybody. Everybody. Verse 18 again, you and the people, you and the people will wear yourselves out. Now we get this. Why is it wearying to Moses? It's just too many people to deal with to be giving God's word individually to each one of them. It just can't happen. But notice, it's also wearying to the people. It's hard for the people. Why? Because it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait all day. The line hardly moves. Your number never gets called. There's no hope for advice on your problem. You know, it's like going to the DMV. No offense, I know people work there. We're thankful for that. But you're often there and you're waiting a long, long time. And you, I'm trying to figure out, like, what does E7 mean? And I have D78. Am I going to be next? No, you're not, evidently. But it's wearying. It's like the running joke, right? Why? Because we want, we want a report. We want to know what's going to happen. And as the people wait around for God's Word, it's wearying for them too. Okay, so what's the solution? Well, first, Jethro gives it, of course, and he reaffirms first Moses' role as Israel's teacher, verses 19 and 20. Now obey my voice, Moses, and I'll give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes, or instruct them about the statutes and laws, and make them know the way in which they they must walk and what they must do. So stop there for a moment. This is nothing new. Moses, you're going to be the go-between between God and the people, and God's talked to you about what the laws are, and you need to help them know what those laws are and how they get lived out in their life. So that's good what you're doing, but here's the new wrinkle. You've got to get others to come help you with this. Verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people who fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let the people, excuse me, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they can decide for themselves. For it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. You might call this the, the trickle down theory of discipling fine-choice men to serve alongside you, to also be teaching and ministering the Word, making judgments. Now, it's going to start still God down to Moses, but then Moses is going to be, he's going to, yes, teach everybody's, but he's going to do it in particular through the guys who are chiefs of thousands. And then going down from there, the guys who are chiefs of thousands have their chiefs of hundreds that they're investing in. And the guys who are chiefs of hundreds had their guys who are over 50s. They're two guys they're investing in. And the guys who over the 50s have the five guys they're investing in that are over 10. What's the point? You're breaking down the instruction and teaching of God's Word into the smallest groups. Why? So it can in- impact the individuals in their daily lives. Of all those in Israel. And so for Moses, that means your discipleship target, those you invest in most, it's going to be a comparative few when you compare it to the mass that is all of this 2 million plus people in Israel. You're going to have to be choosy. Why does he need to be choosy? Because he's a man. It's not because he's sinful. He's just a man. And that means he's limited. He's not infinite. He's limited in time, money, energy, gifting, competency. And I know it's not a sin problem because did not our Lord do the same when he was here on earth ministering? Of course, he ministered to thousands. He fed the five thousands. He taught to huge crowds. But then there was the 12, right? He would sometimes go away with the 12, getting away from other people so he could invest in those who were going to be the next leaders of the new people of God, the church. And then even within the 12, he had his three, Peter, James, and John, that inner circle who he invested in most. We're just too limited. We can't disciple or spiritually care for everyone in the same depth, in the same way. And so you have to be choosy. So back to Moses, well, who are you supposed to choose? Jethro gives him some guidelines. Verse 21, again, moreover, look for able men from all the people. Able men, these are men of ability, men of strength. But what kind of strength are we talking about? Well, Jethro lists three attributes that define what ability here means, competency here means, what strength in God's estimation means. And it means first, they are men who fear God. This is who your next leaders need to be. They need to be men that fear God, whom God looms larger in their minds far more than man does. What does that mean? They fear God more than men. They have to be God focused, obedient to God's word. Also, this means that they are men of integrity. Again, illustrating it, they are not two different kinds of people. They're integral, they're whole. They're not one thing in front of people and then another thing when they're in prayer with God. It's all the same because they fear Him. They know their whole life is lived before God. They must fear God, He says, and they must also be trustworthy or they must be faithful or reliable you got to count on them to follow through. So they don't only have the desire, but they have the discipline to be faithful. I've known many a young man as I've gone through school or even in shepherding in the church. They are very desirous to serve the Lord, and they have a lot of passion. And that's awesome. We need that. But we need young men. You need to channel that passion into discipline so you can be useful to others for the sake of Christ. Those go hand in hand. If you can't be counted on, if you're not faithful or reliable, then you can't really help people in spiritual leadership. Third, the third thing he lists, he says that they must be men who hate a bribe. And of course, these men are making a lot of judgments. They're applying the Word of God to people's lives, so they can't be swayed by money. But notice, it's one thing to not take a bribe, and it's another thing to hate a bribe. It's another thing to hate what it does, to hate how it tempts even you. That's why you hate it so much, because you know how it perverts justice, Th- that you hate what the love of money does to men. And sadly, I can say I've seen this firsthand, the kind of effect the money can have on even ministers in the church. I recall one time, uh, the former teaching pastor, Rich Ryan, and I, we were uh, meeting with another local pastor. And we were meeting with him because there was a member that we even knew about that was an evident sin. And so Rich, of course, he just his bold, bold brother, and he just asked the guy, hey, so why aren't you disciplining him? And I was just shocked what this pastor said in response, but though honestly, it's probably what many are thinking when they won't do the right thing. He said, oh, I know, but she's a good giver. And in that instance, that man has just shown what he's really trusting in. He's not trusting the Lord to provide, so he's willing to hide that lady's sin in the church. Now, before we stand up here and throw stones and go, "That's horrible," and it is. We get the temptation. Your elders here at GBC do such that we make sure we do not know the particular particularities of what each member gives at grace. So if you ever come to my office and we need to have a meeting, and it's one of those meetings, I don't know if you give a dime or $10 million. Actually, I know you don't do that. But I know you don't give a dime or not. I have no idea what you give. I have no clue. And what does that do? It frees me up just to say, I'll just tell you what the Word says. Because I'm not trying to hold you here for money's sake, that's for sure. And that's true of all the elders. We set that up as a guard. Our treasurers know. Our financial people know. But we don't know so we can just minister the word free of conscience. Because we don't even want the temptation. And particularly, as you know then, as Paul talks about who's going to lead the church's elders, the elders must not love money. Because what happens? A love of money will twist justice. It will wrong people and it will twist the word of God. So he lists three attributes that will characterize able men, and kind of a form of these that we often talk about at Grace. As elders, as we're thinking about training up the next pastors, the next future elders, we're even talking about training up more Bible teachers and more fellowship group leaders. What kind of men are we looking for? We put it into an acronym of FAT. We're looking for fat guys, men who are faithful, available, and teachable. And in a way, that kind of corresponds to something of Moses' attributes here that he hears from Jethro. We need men who are faithful. They're faithful to God. They're faithful to the work they've been called. They've been faithful maybe in little, so we're trusting they will be faithful in much. They're available. They're available to the church. They're available to be taught. They're available to come to needs, and that's what they do. And they're also teachable. They're men who submit to the Word of God. They fear God more than men. We're looking for fat guys to be leaders in the church. Faithful, available, teachable men. This is the breeding ground for new leaders in the church. From small group leaders to Bible class teachers to future elders, but it starts there. And so men, particularly to you, if you're not seeing yourself as a leader or you're not aspiring to leadership, why not? God has called men to lead. And maybe it's because you're not faithful, available, or teachable. And again, I'm going to say, why not? Are you content there? Are you being lazy there? There's a lot of other brothers. We want to help you. We want to train you up to be that, for Christ's name. Because we know of the good it does, and actually Jethro lists two benefits to this approach, to this diversifying of the teaching of the Word of God. Look at verse 23 now. He says, If you do this, God will direct you. Just pause there. Notice that even as Jethro gives this counsel to Moses, he's saying, well, God better bless this first before you go and do it, Moses. He's submitting it to God. But if you will do this, here's what Jethro perceives. You will, one, be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So first off, you need to diversify because otherwise you're going to burn out. You're going to wear out. You're going to crumble under the weight. And so let me say, we've alluded to it, but this is why it's so important for the church not to be led by just one guy. This is why in the wisdom of God we see in the New Testament, he calls for a plurality of leaders or elders or pastors to lead the church. You need multiple shoulders to bear this task. The one benefit is the leaders are able to endure. But second, notice the second benefit there, this people also will go to their place in peace. Why? Because they've gotten counsel from the Word of God. That's why. See, everything before was getting bottlenecked. There was a lot of people standing around in wait, wondering what did God have them to do? But this way, the Word gets down to the very families, the very individuals, What's the benefit of multiplying teachers in God's Word? It spreads God's peace down to every 10, every family, every person. It gets personal instruction in the Word of God. And that's where at GBC, that's where our, what we call our fellowship groups our, or our small groups are just so crucial. And of course, we have larger assemblies as we gather and we teach the Word. Uh, we have our Sunday school classes where we also teach the Word. But often, the most personal And that way, the most practical ministry and teaching of the Word happens on that more personal, individual basis like what goes on in our fellowship groups, our groups of ten, you might say. And I know this is happening, so I'm calling it to excel still more. It doesn't happen probably enough. But I encounter this all the time where I'll, you know, I'm one of the pastors here. I'll I'll run into hear about, say down the line, oh man, one of our members is really struggling with, say, a sin, or they have some great financial need. And I'm like, oh, no, this is horrible. We got to get on it and go help them. And then they quickly tell me, oh, no, their fellowship leaders are there taking care of it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Praise God. Not because I don't have to go follow through on it, but that means the body's really caring for one another because they really know what's going on. This isn't about, like, keeping your elders out of doing small group ministry or something, because most of your elders, by the way, lead fellowship groups on our own. But this is about really kind of that principle of, that we know about in government, but subsidiarity, right? You know, when a big government in D.C. has to make sweeping um, conclusions about how to treat everybody in a whole nation, it doesn't go so well, as well as it can who those are on the ground in the smallest part to take care of it. And that's kind of what goes on in the church. I think that's what Jethro is illustrating is the right move here. More individual counsel, more individual application, the right counsel going into the particular person. But that's where pastoral care, peace from God's Word is trickling down to everybody. But by the way, that means it's not only your fellowship group leaders or your small group leaders. In a way, if you're in the church... You're all being commissioned to be as ministers, from men and women to everyone. Every member is a minister. That means, like Moses, your elders here. We are according to Ephesians four. We are to equip you for that work of ministry. Your work to counsel and instruct and point one another's point one another to the daily impact of the Word of God. I give you this word from Paul in Romans. He said. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Now think, this is one of the early churches. It hadn't been a church very long. Nobody had been a Christian for very long. And he says about this whole church, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. Why? That you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. And so then what? You are able to instruct one another. Why? Because you got the Spirit and you got His Word. And the same is more than true for us. Brothers and sisters, you're full with goodness. You're full with knowledge. I know this because you're filled with Christ and you're filled with the Spirit and you have His Word. Let us be driving it down into our lives. But we need His help to do it. Let's pray for that. Let's pray together.